0: Hey, deserving listeners. A longtime patron of the podcast, Hallie Harris, reached out to me to interview me on her podcast, which is called Someday We'll All Be Dead. She is a social worker near Seattle and has a new podcast. We talked for a long time about a lot of different things. We started out talking about microaggressions, but then we ended up talking about politics and Then we talked about death anxiety, and just anxiety in general, and Valium, and we talked about astronomy, and Pluto, and Neptune, and we just talked about so many things, and I thought I might share it with you all, so let's get into it now. Let's go.
1: Dr. Honda, thanks for joining me uh, in this endeavor. Sure. Today, I'd really uh, just love to pick your brain and get your opinions about a couple different topics that I feel like kind of all go together. Um, which is microaggressions, PC culture, and cultural appropriation, which seem like recently have kind of been termed like liberal terms or bad words. Also, I want to know about your libertarian streak and how you feel about those specific words. Sure. So i just going to want to start off with a very clinical definition of microaggression that I looked up, uh, which is a term used for brief and commonplace daily verbal, behavioral, Or environmental indignities, whether intentional or unintentional, which I think is the most important part is to realize it doesn't have to be intentional, that communicate hostile, derogatory, or negative prejudicial slights and insults towards any group. And that definition uh, I found was from 2007. You probably have a better or easier to understand definition.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great definition. I think it covers all the bases. Like you said, covers the intentional versus unintentional.
1: Mm-hmm. I know you've done um, episodes about microaggressions too. Yeah. And some of the examples that I like to just remind people of is when, you know, you're not really thinking about what it is or you don't understand what it is. It's maybe easier to understand with an example, like for example, clutching a handbag uh, when brown people are around.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Um, complimenting someone's English if they're not white. <laughs> right, God. <laughs> um, a female doctor being mistaken for a nurse. Yep. And words, and I'm going to do a whole other episode about this, but phrases like, don't try to Jew me down. I think we forget that common phrases we use every day have, you know, a lot of them have terrible histories.
0: Yeah, there it gets more complicated because obviously that one is hurtful in all likelihood to to a Jewish person. But there are other phrases that people don't necessarily, even the people who are aggressed upon, don't necessarily even re- know that it's aggressive to them or hostile to them. Like I well, remember- I just
1: looked up peanut gallery. I didn't even know that was a thing.
0: Oh, what is that?
1: So when I was looking it up, it basically is uh, back to kind of vaudeville days where the poor people would sit in the row where the peanuts were, and it was usually people of color. And so when they said peanut gallery, they were inferring that those people were poor people and generally people of color. Interesting. Yeah, so, I'd never heard that. So.
0: Well, so that's a good example of this uh, thing that I want to get at, which is that just because a phrase comes from something that was originally marginalizing or just flat out bigoted, it doesn't necessarily mean that today it should be considered a microaggression. Um, so we would have to talk to enough people and ask them, are they hurt by the phrase peanut gallery? Mm. Because just because something has history, like I remember once uh, learning, this was years ago, that rule of thumb was uh, referenced to, and this is actually from what I understand false. I haven't looked it up recently, but somewhat, it became kind of widely or somewhat widely understood that rule of thumb was a reference to, you know, I don't know, a long time ago when being
1: able to beat your wife with a stick,
0: right? That was no bigger than no wider than your thumb. Mm -hmm. Then I heard later than that, that that actually isn't even true (laughs) that someone just made it up.
1: Yeah. I I heard that too. I don't know all the details of it, but yeah, I heard that too.
0: So in, in this example, We just because it has a horrible history, which may or may not even be true, are women actually hurt? And does it hurt their feelings or does it scare them or does it bother them when we use the phrase rule of thumb? Hmm. The vast majority of women would say, no, Like I don't associate rule of thumb with anything bad. So just because something has a weird history doesn't necessarily mean uh, it's a microaggression. So, That's but, a great
1: point. I love yeah. that. <clears throat> yeah, um, just a few other ones that I wrote down were um, yelling at a blind person because you believe they're hard of hearing.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> um, saying, what are you? Go, go. Uh, and, yeah. yeah, and, you know, I, can't, I didn't really say this at the beginning, but one of the big reasons, in case nobody knows psychology in Seattle, which they should, um, is that you are half Japanese. And yeah. I am very white. And so I definitely wanted not only your expertise as a therapist, as a professor, but also as a person of color. And so yeah. Yeah, I can get a better understanding of it, not just from my account, because I'm not the one, except for as a female, I could be microaggressed upon. Um, but Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So uh, I know there's a, there's a personal account. I was out with a friend of mine who is Korean. And, you know, it was a bar. People were drunk and dumb. And But someone came up to him and said, I like karate, just randomly. Like, no one we knew, not even in conversation. And this was many years ago. So I really, you know, I hadn't gone to school. I didn't understand really what was happening. And his response was amazing. He just turned around and said, well, I like pastries. And of course we all cracked up cuz that was the best response but you know thinking about it now and understanding what microaggressions are I can't even imagine having to hear shit like that every day.
0: Yeah, it's pretty awful. Being in Seattle there's a lot more Asians and even half Asians so I get it much less in especially the closer I get to the more cosmopolitan areas and neighborhoods of Seattle but as soon as I step outside of the city and particularly the further East I go in, in the United States, even the East coast, I get, yeah, I get more and more of these comments. Uh, what are you? Or, um, and, and it's actually interesting cause, uh, I was in Cuba recently and there a lot of people, a lot of the locals, when I would talk to them, they don't ha- they don't have a lot of contact with outside cultures or people. You know they're pretty isolated, and a lot of them would uh, refer to me as as uh, Chinese, and and because they don't necessarily know about Japanese people for some reason they, they because China is a communist country, so they have a kinship with them. Uh, the, yeah, but
1: Japan's an island too,
0: right? Yeah, <laughs> probably so. Yeah, but you know. They so they just sort of lump everyone into China. They just call everyone Chinese. Everyone so their word for Asian or East Mm. Asian is China. But anyway, they they would um they would uh, do that thing with their eyes where they'd pull their eyes, you know, to the side. Oh no! Well, so I just want to say, as an Asian person in Cuba, it didn't hurt my feelings because I knew from the context that they were so ignorant of Asians. that they just didn't know better you know what i mean they they didn't know that that would bother me plus they so rarely come across East east asian people that they're immediately that they immediately focus on that detail you know it's it's like when i meet someone that's like seven feet tall I immediately think, all I can think about is like, oh my God, this guy is so tall. That's all you can <laughs> think about. Like he's seven feet tall. He's yeah. so tall. Now to him, he's used to the fact that he's tall, you know. But mm-hmm. if he walked into an NBA practice or something, like no one's going to think, oh my God, that guy is so tall. And so I, I sort of get it where I go to a place where I'm sort of – um quite unique. Now, if I go to the East coast of the United States, even though Asians are more rare out there, I, I don't let them off the hook because they have a TV and they have internet access, you know,
1: <laughs> right?
0: And, and there are Asians on the East coast, you know what I mean? So, uh, so I just have to say from my personal perspective that it's not the behavior, it's, it's the effect of the behavior is, is the important thing.
1: And I just was thinking when you were talking about tall people, maybe it'd be a good time to kind of explain the difference between when we're saying microaggression is generally thought of as something against a minority, which I guess you could argue a seven foot tall person is a minority, um, but how that might be different from what we generally think of as someone getting a microaggression against them versus someone that has, you know, someone that's tall or is there a difference?
0: Well, yeah. I mean, if you're a tall white rich guy in the United States, then the uh, you know the aggression isn't going to be as marginalizing mm-hmm. as if you are a you know lesbian woman of color in a wheelchair who is being microaggressed upon. It's you know there's a power differential there for sure that should be considered. At the same time, if you're seven feet tall or have some other notable You know, difference in terms of your physical appearance. I'm sure if you talk to them, they'd be like, "Yeah, I wish people would just stop focusing on this one." (laughs) I'm I'm a whole human being. It it gets annoying. Um, I mean, you can even it can even come down to, and I I don't know if we would call this a microaggression per se, but uh, but it's the same principle, which is like if you have an interesting name, you know, like um, I was listening to a podcast recently where this guy named Luke. Uh, ran into another guy named Luke and they inst- mm. and they instantly bonded on all the dumb jokes that people will say, you know, Luke, I am your father or you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. And it's like, yes, the th- by the thousandth time you hear that, you're, you're thinking, okay, that's enough of that. You know, uh, it's a similar. Right. Well, process. I
1: know you've mentioned that too about your last name
0: and my first name, <laughs> you know, Captain Kirk and oh, Hon- yeah. <laughs> yeah. Honda in particular though, because depending on the person, so, so it, so let me give you an example so in the united or in Seattle if i see if I'm going through the checkout at the grocery store and there's an Asian checkout person and they notice my name and they comment on it, that doesn't hurt my feelings as much as if I'm in like you know Eastern Washington and a white person comments on my name mm hmm that to white people that might seem like that's unfair. You know, that's like, why would I let the Asian off the hook? And, 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 you know, (laughs) they have a valid concern about that, but I've just been, you know, to an Asian that the key about that for your listeners, I suppose, is that Asian Americans and other people that who don't fit the mo the model of what is considered to be like mainstream American, which is an absurd concept to begin with. But, um, (laughs) They uh, are frequently particularly in uh, particular communities they're frequently given messages that they don't really belong, that they aren't really American, that they aren't really of this land
1: mm-hmm.
0: and therefore are outsiders, you know there's the insiders and the outsiders and when you're when you're given these messages like you know "Where are you from or "What are you?" or that's a weird name. Or, you know, all those messages, they just sort of pile up. If, if you only had like one every year, then they'd probably just be, you know, interesting behavior. You'd be, oh, yeah, I just, someone thought I was an outsider. That was weird and not a big deal. But if you get it all the time, you get these tiny little messages, you're not from here. What are mm-hmm. you? Because if I was white and had a name like Johnson... There would be no questions. Like, you know, there would there would be an absence of those questions. And and it just grates on you over time, just these little met and you just get this this idea, like, so is everyone looking at me like I'm a foreigner? Because mm-hmm. I'm not. I and, right. and it'd be so another thing is like, because foreigners are actually considered lesser, right? You know, there's the real Americans, and then there's foreigners, right? They're they're considered visitors or they don't have as much power in the world. And so it it translates into actual power and agency in in society. And those little messages, you know, they they just go a long way. Um, so when I see an Asian person doing that, I don't perceive them as out they're not outsiding me because we're both Asian. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. we're both aware of the fact that we're both solidly American. So I don't I don't worry about that Asian person's uh, questioning or highlighting the fact that my last name is Honda. Whereas a a white person in a rural area, it, the the suspicion for me is that this person thinks I'm an outsider. That that's the difference.
1: Yeah, that's a good explanation. Thank you for that. Um, <clears throat> just briefly, I want to mention an article I looked up, which was a Washington Post article by Fred Barbash in October 28th of 2015. And it was a discussion about the culture of victimhood. I'm sure you've heard that term. Yep. Um, And it argued really about the difference from civil rights and really about the intention of the speaker or the doer. And um, I don't know if you got a chance to listen to that podcast uh, that I mentioned.
0: I've read the articles and I might have actually heard the podcast, but I'm familiar with the research and, and the author of that.
1: Yeah, yeah, there's a particular um, podcast called The Upgrade, and they did an interview um, with social psychologist Jonathan Haidt, H-A-I-D-T, who is a, he's an author, he did The Righteous Mind, and the name of the episode is How to Talk to People You Don't Agree With. And he's also the co-author of The Coddling of the American Mind, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Setting Up a Generation for Failure. So if anybody did want to go and listen to that, it's actually 10 minutes to 32 minutes into the uh, episode where this interview takes place. And so I just made some some notes to kind of throw out there as his statements and then kind of get your reaction, if that's okay. Yeah. So hate uh, in this interview argues that, quote, campus campus culture is reducing Gen Z's abilities to engage with different opinions, making them more anxious and more prone to take offense. And students were beginning to ask for protection from words, like trigger warnings, safe spaces, and having strong reactions to books and speakers. I know you've talked about that a little bit on your podcast, too. So as a professor, how do you feel about the, quote, campus culture?
0: I find that people who talk about this topic have no connection with campuses, actually. (laughs) Mm
1: -hmm. (laughs) So uh,
0: I, I always find it a little funny. Like, I'm a professor who works at a campus on one of the most liberal uh, you know organizations that has ever existed, and we market ourselves not as liberal but as socially just you know that is the number one thing we push forward and and the number one thing we differentiate ourselves from other organizations that we've that's a value of ours that we um, actually do things around and our history comes from that you know like Antioch University 150 years 160 years ago was there was all these like um, uh, milestones that we were the first you know we're the first to have like a paid woman as a professor in like the the mid 1800s you know what I mean I can't in a in a paid black professor like I can't remember the exact details but Mm -hmm. uh, Martin Luther King's wife Coretta Scott King went to Antioch, you know?
1: Wow. I didn't yeah. know that.
0: And Martin Luther King talked at our graduation, you know, while he was still alive. Um, not our Seattle campus, but you know, one of our other campuses. Anyway, the point is, is that I exist in one of the most, you know, liberal uh, campuses that could exist. And I don't see any of this stuff. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm biased, I guess, but I, I can tell you as some, as a professor and as a former Program director, that the threats that are being talked about in the media, like students rising up against the administration for you know this or that, frivolous lawsuits or whatever, uh, is terror was terrifying to me, and and I you know put some effort into it, but not actually that much. Part of it is just that if you just navigate yourself as a professor and as a program as and as a program director in such a way that doesn't hurt people's feelings, how about that for a novel concept, (laughs) uh, then people tend not to rise up against you. And these examples on other campuses where they will highlight, in my estimation, what's happening is that these little things are happening, and there's this general attitude of us versus them that develops. And I've seen professors do this, where where they will say like, oh, these you know these millennials or these gen Zs people you know they're so entitled all the time, and I just find it to be really gross and not accurate in in my experience uh, mm-hmm. young people today are just as shameful and just as insecure and just as terrified as we were when we were young. They just don't look like it because we're not looking in the right place, but anyway, so I find that uh you know, complicated systemic problems happen at these other universities and then the and then out of the thousands upon thousands of interactions and and you know good moments and bad moments, the worst moment will be caught on camera because now everyone has a camera in their you know in their pocket. <laughs> right. They film these like awful exchanges between professors and students they take like 10 seconds out of that and they put it on the internet and they're like, look at how entitled campuses are. And if you just exist on a campus, then you'll, you'll be like, well, very few people would do such a thing. And even among the people who would, something's got to go terribly wrong uh, as a, as a crowd dynamic or as a, as a PR with, with your students, you know, something's got to get really weird for that to happen, you know? Uh, so, uh, so there's that. Uh, I will say that. Um, does that answer your question? <laughs> I, <don't>, I, <laughs> yeah, I forget I, the, I the initial so. quote that they were talking about. Oh, well, uh, the other thing I'll say is, are there entitled assholes who go to school? <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, there have always been entitled assholes who go to universities and right. take classes and the stuff that comes out of their mouth is uh, from that entitled asshole perspective that that has never not been the case. Uh, highlighting those individuals and saying that represents the generation is scientifically inaccurate.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, he does mention also uh, kids born in 1985 and on were that first generation to be connected to social media, which of course we weren't when we were kids but to have that just inundating them from age 13 on. And then uh, he mentions being able to have that connection between controlling social media environment versus real world, like being able to block someone or mute someone or mute a game or mute a video. And then in the real world, you can't do that. And he's, he's arguing that that's contributing to their, I don't know, sensitivity maybe.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's an interesting argument. It's hard to say. I, I find these discussions to be um, interesting, but anyone who claims they have a causal link between those things is um, doesn't understand how data works and, and, and how causation works. It's hard to say, and we'll never know. Um, it, it's hard to measure, blah, blah, blah. But really what he's getting at is that... So the basis of this guy's argument is actually sound. Uh, he starts from a place of uh, what I would consider to be convincing, and then he branches off into very unconvincing areas, which mm-hmm. is a, a hallmark of a charlatan trying to sell books, <laughs> which he is um, there are There are many who have come before him, and there will many who will come after but the the basis of his of his research or the research that he 's pulling from is sound in that over time there have been different cultures of how to i don't know kind of appeal to society or how to get things done, and in the past there in recent past, there was more of a culture of um i can't remember the exact word he use if it was honor or something, but it was like when you look at Martin Luther King, he uh, stood up hes you know tried to stay honorable, he uh, didn't complain or didn't victimize, you know, he didn't point out he was a victim a lot of the times. Mm -hmm. He was more focusing on like, uh, you know, trying to build people up. Let's, you know, let's move forward. And there's pros and cons to that, to that. Uh, I'm not describing it well. He describes it much better, but there's, there's a certain mode of like trying to appeal to society or trying or your interpretation of what's happening to you as in, in society. Whereas today, uh, which I think is you know, valid in terms of my observations, people today try to appeal to society through amping up their victimhood. Now, the word victim is such a loaded term in our society, you know, acting mm-hmm. and playing the victim. We tend to use that word when we're uh, looking at someone and saying that, that their victimhood is invalid, that they are uh, faking or drumming up uh, their victimhood. But actually, that's not what the research is showing. What the research is showing is that uh, people are trying to appeal to others by showing, like, look at the things, the bad things that are happening to me. So, you know, uh, someone, and this, hap- and this happens all the time, like the Me Too movement is essentially a victim culture uh, movement. And I don't think anybody uh, would say that the Me Too movement is a bad idea
1: um, right. Well, some people might. <laughs>
0: well, no rational person. I mean, uh, people, uh, pe- I, I would imagine some people misunderstand what the Me Too movement is because they've been fed something quite silly. But the right. notion that people, regardless of their gender, uh, have the right not to have them, uh, you know, sexually harassed, raped, assaulted um, you know, pressured into having sex, you know, everyone would agree that that's, that's great. And raising awareness around that is great. Um, So, but that's a victim culture movement, you know, the the me too movement, it, the, the, it's in the phrase, you know, me too, I was victimized too. And so, so the, the uh, victim culture movement or the victim culture kind of emergence, it, it's just a difference in the way that we do things now. Partially uh, because of Twitter and all this kind of thing, because people can speak up. You don't really need a leader like Martin Luther King because you, everyone can speak for themselves in a, in a way. Um, so, but so that's sound. I agree with that, and I'm like, oh, that's interesting. I hadn't really thought about that movement. I like you know societal philosophical observations like that. It's interesting. And it's mm-hmm. interesting to think about you know if you, so when we go back to 200 years ago. I think that's when they called it honor culture. And there's still people that are in honor culture today. Um, and, you know, like the dueling between Alexander Hamilton and uh, Burr or whatever. <laughs> like, <laughs> like you had two uh, politicians who were privileged and could have avoided such a thing, but because one person called the other person out, they did a duel and, you know, they would kill each other. Uh, and because if they didn't do that, then they would be seen as um, a terrible person. Whereas today... You can't it, you don't necessarily duel someone or beat someone up to establish your honor. You say you humiliate them by saying, You victimized me. That's the way you can humiliate other people is to say, you are a racist or you are a sexual assault person or you are this and that. And and that's what works. Whereas in the past, you know, Alexander Hamilton wouldn't say, you know, Burr, I think it is was his name Burr? Was that the guy? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And
1: is it yeah. sad that I only know about that because of drunk history?
0: Uh, I don't know what
1: that says about our education.
0: (laughs) I think it's a very educational show and (laughs) hilarious. Anything that can deliver, you know, uh, yeah, I love that show. So, you know, uh, Alexander Hamilton didn't say, you know, Burr is committing microaggressions against me or Burr is being unfair to me. Burr is, um, you know, he, he didn't, that's not what he did. He's like, I'm just going to shoot him now according to the discourse not one one culture is not better than the other you can see the problems with an honor culture there are people today in america who still exist in that honor culture right where it's like uh like gang violence okay you know one gang shot another gang and so now honor culture dictates you got to shoot them back and it, it's like these are not functional ways of behaving in life so 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 the baseline understanding is not a we don't place a value on these different cultures we just observe them and say okay we're shifting over time
1: mm-hmm.
0: um but what this guy does is he ex- is he ta- he takes that research and he bridges this massive chasm uh to a very common uh, false notion in our society among shall we say conservatives who believe that our society is made up of a bunch of whiners and a bunch of entitled um, you know, people who have false entitlement and, and therefore, you know, we have a problem. Right. And so that's, and the title of his book says it all. I mean, there's nothing more biased than, than the title. I mean, read, read the title of his book again.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, let me flip my page here. Uh, the coddling of the American mind, how good intentions and bad ideas are setting up a generation for failure.
0: Yeah. For failure. How the hell yeah. does he know that? Like <laughs> if anything, we're doing so much better than, than we were in the past. Uh, women are getting paid more. There's less lynchings in the, than in the past. Uh, you know, people of color are being hired more, not as much as they should, but, you know, more, you know, mm-hmm. there, there are now we're having problems with like, uh, poverty and this kind of thing. We need to do some work on that, but, but how are we failing? Like, uh, it's just a, it's just a different way that our society deals with victimization is, is the point. So that's a very, right. well, and I'm
1: glad to hear your thoughts on this particular person, because I think it's easy for people, especially people, white people, um, to get sucked into this narrative that he creates. Like you said, he takes this good, solid foundation and then kind of gently and skillfully twists it so that as you're reading along, you're kind of sucked into, oh, yeah, this is a good idea. And then all of a sudden you're over here in left field with victimhood and you didn't even know you were going there. And then you're like, wait, is that a good idea? Wait, (laughs) wait.
0: Right. And if, and he's one, he's speaking to the choir, like the people who are paying attention to him are people on the right. Mm -hmm. People, people on the left are not paying attention to him, but people like, if you look at news outlets and whatnot, like the people who are quoting him and talking about him, because, because he is a convincing quote unquote scientist who is, Mm -hmm. who who has proven that our society is a victim culture, which, to, to people on the right is associated with something bad as mm-hmm. if honor culture is something good. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> right. Uh, and, and so, uh, so yeah, it's, it, it's interesting, uh, and, uh, uh, aggravating. Uh, I, cause I, I didn't hear the podcast that you are citing, but I, I did listen to an interview with him on a long form interview with him somewhere else. It might've been the psychology podcast. I'm not sure, mm. but he. Uh, I learned everything I needed to from that interview because again he starts off. I was like totally agreeing with him. I was like, oh okay, yeah okay. And then he just, as you say, skillfully slides ever so slowly into this notion of like everyone's a whiner and we're raising a bunch of entitled brats and we need to you know stop this and our society's going down the tubes. And I was like, what? Like, how did you get there? Like, (laughs) you know, how do you know that? You know, and and the tone to me was so much like kids today. I can't tell you how many times I hear serious scientists basically just saying some complicated version of kids today.
1: Yeah, yeah. And you know he, and I don't want to keep talking about him forever, but just one more thought that um, he mentions is he felt like the term microaggression itself was inaccurate because of intent. And perhaps a more accurate term he suggested was faux pas. And it kind of goes back to the definition of it doesn't have to be intentional. But where's the line between ignorance and finally having some responsibility for knowing what you're saying?
0: Well, I don't disagree with that i I do uh when he does talk about microaggressions, he seems largely unaware of the reality of it as a white male, you know right <laughs> like which doesn't surprise me um, but i don't you know I, I get why. Uh, I don't mind changing the language. I mean, as long as we understand that faux pas is something to really avoid, you know, like we need, mm-hmm. to, we need to look at this as a society. Um, I think one of the, but I'm going to add another element to this, which is that liberals are not, necess- are not in my um, judgment doing a good job at helping people like him understand microaggressions. Um, I very rarely hear discourse around microaggressions that actually I, I agree with on, on from liberals or conservatives. I mean, obviously, conservatives, uh, I'm not um, typically uh, enthusiastic about their discourse, but but even people on the left, like already the distinctions that we've already made uh, are not typically talked about. The, typically what people say is, you know, um, like someone points out my name Uh, at a grocery store, that's racist. And I've already said like, well, if it's an Asian person, (laughs) uh, it's not, I don't feel it as racism because we both know we're American and he's just commenting on my name. A white person says, especially if we're in rural America, they point out my name. I don't know they're being racist. I don't know they're biased about Asians, but I suspect it. So Um, And when I go to Cuba and they go, you know, ching chong, ching chong, and they pull their eyes to their side, um, I don't interpret that as racism because of the context. So, but what people on the left will do is they'll be like, well, that's racist. You can't do that. That's, that's sexist. You can't do that. That's a microaggression. You can't do that. And it's like.
1: But all of that's nuanced.
0: Well, nuanced. And it depends on how it's received. That's the. Right. Right, and that's the that's the part that is completely left out. And I think what the problem is is that people have a hard time admitting when they're hurt. You know, I've already talked about how it will hurt my feelings. You know, if someone gives the impression like they believe I'm not American, that hurts my feelings because I feel very American. My family has been you know in the United States uh, on my white side since the 1600s on my Japanese side for 120 years in Washington state, you know, so, <laughs> yeah. so I feel very Washingtonian and very American. Um, and so to imply repeatedly from people that I'm not American, it just hurts my feelings. because I'm just like, uh, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't denigrate people from Japan, but it's like, I'm, I'm so far from Japan in terms of culture. Why are people doing de- It just hurts. And so, but I find that, people on the left when they're talking about microaggressions and this kind of thing they don't mention that element and i think uh when you don't mention that element it's easily misunderstood as pc culture and as there's these rules you have to follow and i think it's quite confusing to white people they're just like so so what just tell me the rules and it's like there are no rules <laughs> other right. than other than try to predict what will hurt someone's feelings which everyone understands is a good rule like you can just tap into that rule for white people and be like, you know, unless you're sure, um, you know, don't do something that might have a slight chance of hurting someone's feelings. That's, that's the rule. Um, and, and maybe ask people like, so I was just about to ask you about your last name, but would that hurt your feelings? Cause I don't want to make you feel like an outsider. Uh, you know, I, I'm guessing if someone did that to me, I'd be like, oh my God, thank you. You know? go ahead, ask away, you know, <laughs> what's up with your last name? You know? And I, in a, from that context, I'd be like, well, this person, they're not trying to outside me. They're just interested in my name. You know? Um, uh, you know, I do this all the time myself. I do microaggressions all the time. Like, a, like I think I've talked about this in the podcast. I had a, a student, a colleague of mine who she says, Oh, I'm native American. Or I can't remember how I found out she's native American. And I immediately ask, Oh, what tribe? Mm-hmm. And I don't know why I asked that question, but I know I had somehow absorbed that notion that that's the question you ask in situations like that. (laughs) And, uh, you know, it's, you know, what are they supposed to say? Like, Oh, I'm this tribe and I'm going to be like, Oh, like, I don't know why it matters to me, but, but she immediately said to me, actually, I don't answer that question. And I was like, Oh my God, what did I just do? You know? Uh, she's like, you know, I, I just don't answer that question. And I was, it was super awkward. I, I was mortified that I had stepped on some landmine or something. And, you know, inadvertent, but learned my lesson that at least for one person, when you ask that question, you know, uh, what tribe it's, it's, and I'm guessing, surmising that for Native American people, they get asked that so many times that uh, it becomes kind of grading too. Um, I'm guessing for Native American people, they're just like, do you really care? (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like, what's the the difference to you, what tribe I'm from? Um, Plus the whole word tribe kind of has issues. But anyway, um, I actually still don't know why it bothered her. But, you know, I I do it all the time too. It's just, you know, there's just sort of automatic scripts we fall into. And we just need to pay attention and ask around and make sure we don't hurt people's feelings.
1: Well, you've slid right into the next section of my notes, which is exactly uh, that, which is PC culture. And I had done another episode um, about how PC culture kind of started out as trying to be inclusive and not hurt people's feelings, like "don't be a dick." That's kind of my catchphrase, and it's morphed into meaning you can't say anything without someone getting offended and that they're intolerant. So, and I'm glad you brought up the, the Native American example because it is important to know that not all people are going to react the same way. Um, I did uh, one of my papers for my grad school about uh, the Tulalip tribes, which I've lived here in Snohomish County within probably 20 miles of that reservation, which is also problematic, but um, the word reservation, um, all my whole life. And I didn't even know that Tulalip wasn't A specific tribe. It's actually 30 tribes that signed a treaty and moved to that reservation. Um, But in her world, the person I was interviewing, the way that they introduce each other in a formal setting is very specifically tribe driven. And so, you know, I think it's your point is good and valid that you should ask an individual how they feel about it because someone might be very offended about um, asking what tribe they are because it's you know they hear it all the time and it's grating and also someone might be very prideful and want to tell you and and happy that you recognize that they are an individual thing and it's not everyone's all one Native American tribe if if that makes sense
0: yeah interesting I didn't even know that I too have lived in the Tulalip tribe area for my entire life and had no idea that detail <laughs> <laughs> And that's pretty shameful, you know. Uh, I absolutely would have th- thought if someone lived on the Tulalip tribe, I would be like, oh, you're from the Ch- Tulalip tribe, you know, the Tulalip Reservation. Right. And they would have been like, no, actually, we're 30 different.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it's three main tribes and then um, several smaller local tribes kind of all pull together. Interestingly, that's the one that um, Chief Seattle decided not to sign that treaty and not to move his people. And that's one of the reasons the Duwamish tribe has a problem with getting federally recognized status. So that's just a side note. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So yeah, PC culture. Um, For some reason, I cannot
0: hear you. What happened to me? Sorry, let me. uh,
1: From the term first starting and. Do we need to be "quote unquote" politically correct?
0: So, just a side note, Hallie. Just for a like ten seconds, I didn't hear you. Can you still oh. hear me? Yeah, um, I can. Hear you. Okay, so maybe this part needs to be edited or something. I'm not sure. Uh, <laughs> can you repeat the question?
1: Yeah, I, I just basically was saying, you know, you've already touched on. Um, don't focus on not hurting people's feelings, but I wonder if you feel like there's been a change in the "quote unquote" being politically correct, and is it? is it necessary? And is it really a bad word? Um, Because I've I've seen, I did a a podcast about it, talking about how it started out as trying to be more inclusive and not hurt people's feelings. And then it morphed into, you can't say anything without someone being offended.
0: Right. So there are two problems (coughs) that we've kind of touched on already, which is that for people who are hostile to the notion of uh, empathy about these aggressions and racism and microaggressions, they will point towards PC culture and will say, Oh, you know, it's just this essentially it's just saying like Donald Trump will do this. Essentially. It's like, there's just a bunch of whiny liberals who want to impose weird rules just because they want to seem superior or they want to look down on, you know, quote unquote, real Americans. (laughs) God. Um, but, (laughs) uh, uh, and then people uh, who are pro, uh, sort of having empathy for this sort of thing, they don't explain it well. Like I said, you know, they will actually, in my experience, talk about it in such a way where it actually is essentially what conservatives are complaining about, where it's like there's do's and don'ts. and Right. Like, um, like take an example like with trans people who use they instead of he or she. Um, Mm -hmm. with that one, it's, there are certain pockets of, of culture and people who have become extremely accustomed to using they instead of he or she. And there are vast, you know, swaths of our society that are not used to that yet and are having trouble with it because it takes a while to adjust. And what some people I've seen do uh, whether they're trans or not uh, will just jump down the throat of people who are not accustomed to that yet uh, and mm-hmm. might even and might even be trying they might even be trying to adjust their brain to using they but it takes a while it's just it's a it's a syntax thing that our brains it just takes a while to rework our neurons and i don't think that helps i don't think it helps to jump down people's throats when either they're unaware or maybe even they're trying. Now, if someone just comes flat out and says something like locker room talk to, to, uh, uh you know, didn't dismiss the notion that sexual assault is somehow, uh, normal and normalized for men to, to, to brag about.
1: Do mean not but, all men just grab them by the pussy?
0: Yeah and brag about it, um, the, uh, feel free to jump down those people's throats because that is an overt message that deserves mirth. But what I find is some people on the left, are they'll jump down people's throats for the smallest of things. And that has to be tempered. Now, I understand for some people who have been transgressed upon so often, you know, hundreds of times a day, every day for their entire life, the last, you know, straw on the camel's back really uh throws them into a rage, which I get. I've been there. Like mm-hmm. like I uh, I think I've talked about this on the podcast before. I can't remember the example I gave, but I think I was saying something like the next person who asks me about my last name, I'm just gonna tell him to shut the fuck up or something. I can't remember what I said. <laughs> but you know, I uh, there's a certain point where I'm just like, I can't take it anymore. Even though for this other, for this, you know, the next person who does this to me, they might have never done it to another human being ever before, but it's the billionth time for me. So, right. I, so I get that on some level, but at the same time, it has to be, it has to be, uh, we have to take all that into consideration, you know, like the, A girl in high school who wore the Chinese dress. Do you remember that thing that was last
1: year? Yes. I remember you talking about that in the episode, too.
0: Yeah. She wore the, the, she she was, I think she was Latino, if I'm not mistaken. Latina, sorry. Or some, she was a a girl of color, from what I understood. And Mm -hmm. she, but not Asian. And she wore a Chinese dress to a traditional Chinese dress to prom. She
1: and was, she wore it just because she thought it was pretty, right? Yeah, she thought it was pretty. Am I remember yeah. remembering that?
0: Yeah, and she, and I think they're did they live in Utah? If I'm not mistaken, some mostly white community. Let's just put it that way. And it posted on Twitter, and then she got blasted by Asians saying you're appropriating our culture and all that kind of stuff. And on some level, it's like, okay, you know, I get it, but my God, the amount of hatred <laughs> that she incurred from my brothers and sisters of the Asian you know, dissent uh, was completely overblown and not gauged to the situation. Mm -hmm. When you actually asked Chinese people, they're like, I don't care. She can wear a Chinese dress. Uh, It doesn't offend me. Um, And a lot of people were blasting her uh, who weren't Chinese. You know, they were like, I don't know, Filipino or something. Um, And also a lot of white people incidentally were blasting her. And uh, so, no one is really dealing with this well. No, no political side of the aisle is, is dealing with it well. Um, uh, and I just think more sophistication around the discourse is necessary.
1: And maybe a little more grace for each other.
0: <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Empathy, yeah, I think that was my big point in that episode, right? It's like uh, people who are unaware of microaggressions need to have more empathy about how they might be hurting other people's feelings or bothering people and then people who are traditionally harmed and marginalized by these messages need to have empathy for the aggressor because the vast majority of people are trying their best and Mm -hmm. with a little bit of grace and a little bit of love and a little bit of you know uh education shall we say uh people will adjust, you know, they'll learn They're like, Oh, okay. I didn't know that. You know, thanks. Thanks for telling me in a nice way that I can understand. Now I know what to do in the future. So I won't hurt other people's feelings because I don't want to hurt other people's feelings.
1: Right. And having the reaction of jumping down someone's throat, if, even if you're trying to be an ally, like you're the, you're the white person saying that um, <clears throat> you're just going to make the other person more defensive and not open or receptive to listening to, what the other person's going through and maybe even force them further into their corner.
0: Right. Oh yeah, exactly. Um, I have a stark example. I won't name names, but I have a a friend um, who is, she's a lesbian and she is a activist and, you know, very uh, politically minded. Uh, And she went up to some, Uh, some trans people whom she thought were identifying as women, but at some point they had started to identify as trans and they, and it was some social gathering. And she, she went up to these old friends of hers and she said, Hey ladies. And they jumped down her throat in this really Mm. aggressive, mean, hostile way that I, I think from her account, ended their relationship with these two, these two individuals. And my friend is telling me this and she's just like, what in the world? Like I, I, I didn't know, or if I, I forgot me, I don't know. Like I just said, Hey ladies, like am I that, am I an evil person? Like the way they treated me, it was like I killed their puppy or something.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so one, like I said, I get the rage because there's so much that people, particularly trans people, have to deal with on a daily basis that every bit is just, a, uh, you know, it's a stabbing someone in the wound, you know. Uh, but on the other hand, if we're going to actually accelerate the process of change in our society, we have to figure out a way to help people... Uh, you know, move incrementally, you know, trying to jump, trying to take people and throw them over the wall, so to speak. You know, it's, it doesn't usually work. So,
1: yeah. I mean, well, I know I've had you on for a long time. So I'm just going to try to wrap this last part up a little quicker uh, and honor your time. Um, so it really nicely slides into the last part of what I want to talk about, which was hypocrisy. So uh, I listen to a lot of podcasts and another podcast called Oh No, Ross and Carrie. Um they report on spirituality and fringe science and claims of the paranormal. But uh Carrie was down in Australia and did a talk. Um that's uh the hypocrisy edition on November 9th of 2018, if anyone wants to hear it. Uh and she really talks about how quick we as a society are uh to be judgmental of others when they appear hypocritical. And but when it's ourselves, we tend to make excuses or exceptions. So she was giving some examples for like Mother Teresa has this worldwide, worldwide appeal that she was this great person and canonized and all this and that she would take people in and be caring for them. But apparently some of those people really needed to go to the hospital and have penicillin. Um, that's kind of a weird example, but that was one of them. And then um, of course, Bill Cosby, which you talked about at length in, in your episode and then uh, like anti-gay religious figures turning out to be gay. Um, and a really great example that she gave was, um, peop- she said there was a study, and I don't have the details of the study, but she talks about people who said that they were most concerned about climate change were the least likely to recycle and the most likely to use plastic, and the opposite was also true. So people that didn't weren't as concerned about climate change were the ones that were more likely to recycle. And uh, same with, you know, more more righteous until it comes out, you know, directly people with animal rights, you know, they're wanting to protect animal rights, but they're not necessarily vegetarian or vegan. And I just wondered if that's a surprise to you that it kind of seems like the, the more you're righteous about something, the less likely you are to back it up and how easily we make exceptions for ourselves especially due to our past acts, like we've been so good about being an ally, for example, and then we do something and, oh, well, it's okay. You know, we've built up karma points or something, but someone else does something hypocritical and we're all over them.
0: Yeah, I love this question. I don't have time to answer it though. I have a client who is going to call me in like 60 seconds.
1: Oh no! (laughs) Well, thank you so much for your time and I look forward to another talk with you. you. So we're talking about hypocrisy, and I was mentioning a podcast where um, Carrie was talking about how quick we all are to judge other people when they appear hypocritical, and there were some examples there. She also describes the root words meaning indecisive or have not decided or inner struggle, which is what hypocrisy is supposed to mean. And she discussed uh, maybe being able to look at two views of a conflict and try to use the pro view of their argument to start a conversation instead of attacking the view that you don't agree with. And uh, there's also examples of how we give ourselves passes, especially due to past acts. So if we have behaved in a way that's congruent with our belief, then even if we don't do the thing that we're agreeing with or supporting, then we give ourselves a pass, but then someone else does something hypocritical and we're quick to jump on them. So one of the things we were last talking about is people that recycle um, <clears throat> are really strong into climate change and then they're the least likely to recycle. Whereas the people that were not as concerned about climate change were more likely to recycle. And you were mentioning about your um, straw, the thing about the straw.
0: I was talking about a straw.
1: Yeah. You, you, uh, you and your podcast um, actually it was on the Paul Logan episode uh you got into your libertarian streak versus the plastic straws and the regulations and kind of the you know you you yourself feel like you want to support things that help climate change and reduce our imprint but then you also have this libertarian streak where you don't want more rules imposed on us
0: yeah i guess in a perfect world people would just regulate regulate their behavior in a way that was moral and just and for the better good of everybody, but that doesn't always happen. So I struggle with that personally. I, I don't know if the government cares about my personal struggle with that, but <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I, I kind of struggle with it. I, I think in the end, with uh, thoughtful legislation, uh, we can um, keep people's freedoms while also thinking about future freedoms that will be limited by uh, if we don't take action you know if if if, for example with regards to environmentalism people might feel like like a, a tax on gasoline for example other countries have much higher taxes on gasoline and we could do that and there's talk about it occasionally and there already is i think a fairly high tax on gas gasoline to some extent but but uh, the idea is is that well, if you're going to be driving your car, you are causing a lot of you're contributing to a lot of problems in the world, particularly as we move forward into uh, you know rising sea levels and that kind of stuff. And so uh, you know you could make an argument, for example, that every person who drives their car contributed a slight amount to the death and destruction of the wildfires in California this last year. Mm -hmm. Not like directly, obviously, and not knowingly, but when you raise um, the temperature of the planet overall, climate change happens, weather patterns change, which result in more wildfires in California. And that was incredibly destructive and cost a lot of money. So you could say, well, then that cost has to be passed on to those who, Uh, you know contributed to that and so taxing gasoline would be a logical choice there Uh, i think that uh, so the libertarian in me is is like and i want to be clear i'm not a quote unquote libertarian i just have a value of libertarianism in terms of freedom of choice and that kind of thing but i i I don't vote libertarian i don't subscribe to libertarian newsletters or anything like that (laughs) um and so uh, uh, it challenges that because it's like, well, shouldn't people? Shouldn't we just tell people, look, if you drive your car, it'll contribute to climate change and things like wildfires, and it's up to you to decide whether or not you're going to drive your car. And uh, although in principle that sounds nice, but in reality it ends up destroying the earth, and and a lot of really bad things happen. So in those instances, like in that example. Um, I would support a tax on gasoline um, just for that reason alone, and there's you know hundreds of other reasons why the cost should be passed on to uh, to the uh, people who drive cars and to be clear, I am not a scholar on environmentalism or government or taxes. I am a scholar on psychotherapy and psychology only, so this is me speaking as a extreme layperson. <laughs>
1: Well, I, I think I really just wanted to get back to the question of, are you surprised that people that are more righteous about certain things, regardless of if it's climate change or animal rights or anything like that, that they tend to be the ones that are not as, I guess, they're what we would consider more hypocritical. Like they're not doing those things in their daily lives, even though they're the loudest proponents of the thing and are willing to jump on other people.
0: Yeah, I've given it some thought over the years because of the news stories like you mentioned when we talked before about how you would have a, a, you know, anti-gay politician or minister or something. And they come out to be found that they are, in fact, engaging in uh, same-sex relations and how weird that is, you know, that Mm -hmm. it's like it's we We can all understand that some people are repressed or scared to um, realize their sexual orientation or are in a community where that, that's hard for them, so we can imagine that, but why would one of those people come out so strong against gay people? like it's one thing to be closeted and 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 afraid It's another thing to be closeted afraid and like a rabid, rageful attacker of of gay people and it's impossible to know scientifically but the conceptualization i have is that when we have impulses that bother us we engage in defense mechanisms um like one of the things just getting back to the environmentalism about cars um seattle people drive a lot of cars and seattle people tend to be more environmentally minded and How how do they live? How do they sleep at night? uh, You know, with that contradiction. Well, they go into denial about it. As do I. It's like every time I get in my car, I don't think I'm raping the earth. I just, (laughs) I just, I just get in my car and drive. You know what I mean? Or I blame it on something else. Like the example with the with the uh, recycling. I haven't heard those those research findings, but. But um, it has been found uh, a, a, as a parallel to the research you identified that when people recycle, they're more likely to do other things that are bad for the, bad for the planet. The idea goes is, is it's like, well, I recycled. you know, I, I did something good, so now I can do something bad.
1: That's right, what, right. That's like, what she was mentioning. Yeah. Right.
0: It's like um, people who exercise... Uh, some people who exercise will drink more that night or eat more later that day because it's like, well, I exercise, so now I get to eat more. And, you know, we just engage in these systems of denial, and, and it's functional in a lot of instances because we can't just be constantly dealing with all the horribleness. But taken to an extreme, if you have a particular complex inside of you, like I hate myself for being gay, and my community hates me for being gay, and I wish I wasn't gay. Uh, you could imagine that you would, um, for some of those individuals, a small minority probably, develop a uh, a defense mechanism against that, where it's like, well, I'm going to attack it. Um, I'm going to mm-hmm. show, I'm going to show the world and myself that I am like the farthest away from gay that one could get, which means that I'm going to attack gay people. I'm going to attack the quote unquote, gay lifestyle. And maybe that will get, maybe that will solve this inner strife that I'm having. Uh, It doesn't usually result in that, you know, and a lot of our defense mechanisms don't work. So, so the hypocrisy um, is, you know, one conceptualization is, is to look at it that way.
1: Yeah. And and certainly, like you mentioned, I mean, we're, we're all hypocrites in some way or another. I can think for myself that, animal rights is a, you know, important to me. And yet I'm still eating steak. So, you know, every time I eat a steak, I'm feeling bad about how cows are being treated. And she kind of gets back to thinking about when people are are having those struggles is thinking of it as an inner struggle of two values in competition, rather than just writing them off for having crazy notions. Like, and she was even specifically mentioning like the anti-vaxxers like I'm sure they're not thinking to themselves, "Oh, I want these kids to get measles, for example, in Washington state right now. Um, they're just having an inner struggle with how they feel about you know is there is there a I can't even think this way <laughs> is there a danger in vaccines um versus the herd vaccination and and helping other people, and so she mentions trying not to ignore what we have in common, start bridging the gap and asking how they came to the conclusion um, to be able to have conversations with people instead of attacking them, um, trying to figure out, you know, it may not resolve in a day or even months or years and not trying to be the victor and telling them that they're wrong, but trying to figure out where they're coming from and see if you can find the common ground and the thing that you might actually agree with.
0: Yeah, I totally agree with that. I was thinking the exact same cuz someone uh wrote in and asked us to talk about the anti-vaxer thing cuz as you, you know, identified, Washington state has I don't know, 25 cases of measles or something and in, in a state where uh we didn't I think in the past we would go for years without having any cases of measles.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um so it's um
1: Yeah, I think it's in the 30s now even
0: So the uh, discourse in the news or among conversations is to laugh at the anti-vaxxers. They're idiots. They, you know, who are these people? They're Jenny McCarthyites or something. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to say that I'm not um, prone to that kind of talk, but the solution doesn't lie there. It lies in what you're saying, which is to, uh, reach out to these people and figure out like, well, how did you get to this decision and and how can we how can we help you know you understand like the full situation? It's still your choice, you know you can still choose to vaccinate or not, but you know let's let's talk about this, and I get why you're afraid, you know it's terrifying mm-hmm. to to take in your infant to the physician and have this physician like jabbing your you know, beloved child with a needle injecting God knows what into, I mean, the physician knows what, but the, the parent the (laughs) child that don't know what, and, and there is, you know, there's forms you fill out that say like, um, there's a chance that this could happen. There's a chance that, you know, there's, you look on the internet, of course, there's going to be all sorts of talk about, um, you know, bad things happening. And so you're thinking, you know, pros and cons. You're like, well, con is, it looks like this is a risk. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and yeah, you know, there's other people saying, yeah, there's <coughs> a kind of a risk of measles. I don't even know what measles is. You know, what is measles? You know, I don't even know what that is because, because we've eradicated it. You know, I don't know the exact term eradication isn't, I think the technical term, but you know, we haven't, we, we've effectively eliminated it from our population and so people don't really know what it is. And so it's all about helping people understand their fears. I suspect that um, as measles gets more news coverage, that some of the parents who are leaning in the direction of anti-vaccination will start to get scared of measles. And they're, they'll be willing to take that chance with the vaccination to avoid measles. Because, you know, because I think, did someone die? Did a kid die from measles?
1: I don't, I don't remember if anyone's actually died yet, but I feel like as of yesterday or the day before there was another case and they're all in the same County, but I think there's 35 or 36 cases.
0: Yeah. And and they're, it's a pretty debilitating illness. Right.
1: Yeah. It's not just like having the cold. Right. It lands
0: you in the hospital at times. Right. So I think that that fear will, you know, spread and parents will, say, well, I'm afraid of the vaccination because I don't really understand it, but um, I'm also afraid of the measles. So Mm -hmm.
1: good point. Fear. I hate to think that fear is the thing that motivates people because that seems to be everything in our political system right now, but we don't want to go there. Uh, So the last thing I want to mention about her talk was she mentioned people coming from four different perspectives when you're starting to talk to people and if they're coming from what she's calling fringe science perspective, which is probably the anti-vax world, um, that they're still trying to work within science. There's some basis of science in there, even if they don't necessarily believe it. Then the next level, not necessarily in levels, but the next uh, option is conspiratorial, where they feel like evidence just isn't enough. And there's still room in there to to have discussion. Um, Once you start moving into the paranormal uh, perspective, then that's above conspiratorial and you may or may not have room to have those discussions. And then the last perspective she mentioned is spiritual, where it's pretty unlikely that you're going to change someone's mind. And really, if you don't have a good relationship with someone, or that's the point where you have to decide, is this conversation really worth having? And so... I think that's really where I want to go with that with you is at what point do you decide, you know, is this conversation really worth having? Do you really feel like you have to be the one that points out something or that someone's opinion is wrong or have a fight on Twitter?
0: Yeah, that's a tough one. I have been struggling with that for a long time. You could even say since I was a child, I I can remember times as a child where I would hear something that I knew was false or I thought was false, I should say. And there, there's actually, just as a, as a um, I think I've told this story in the podcast before. There's this moment where we're sitting, you know, me and my family, we would eat dinner every night together at 5.30 on the dot. Uh, me, my parents, and my three siblings, we'd sit around a round white table and we had giant glasses of whole milk, like straight from the cow, <laughs> literally. <laughs> my, my mom had a daycare and uh, one of the kids, uh, the parents couldn't afford to pay for the daycare. So they paid with whole milk from a cow. That, that, oh. that And so we had five gallon buckets, you know, those buckets you get at Home Depot. Oh, yeah. We had five gallon buckets of whole milk straight from the cow. And we would actually... So that uh, was
1: like buttermilk. You had like cream on the top.
0: Yeah, so you had to like <laughs> scrape off the the cream, and it was non pasteurized, so it, you know mm-hmm. could have killed us. And <laughs> um, but we were milk drinkers anyway. My point is that uh, we're sitting around the table, and I was—I must have been—I don't know, eight or something, maybe younger. And my older brother, who's seven years older than me, uh, somehow we got on the topic of astronomy and planet uh, orbits, and my brother said that pluto was the was the ninth planet and this is before the whole dwarf planet um uh, situation came along it was back when pluto was still a planet and and i said well actually <laughs> pluto <laughs> is uh sorry i just burped um pluto is the uh sometimes the eighth planet because it actually crosses the orbit of neptune and i didn't even know that yeah and uh, my brother says, oh, that's ridiculous. Don't be so stupid. Um, and now that I think about it, I, 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 I'm pretty sure that's still true. <laughs> <laughs> Either way, it was in a book that I had. And mm-hmm. my, my brother and my... So in that moment, you know, I'm telling my brother, uh, actually, you know, Pluto can is sometimes eighth planet. And in that moment, I thought, well, he's just going to say, oh, well thanks for telling me or, or, or I don't know, I thought he'd just drop it, but he sort of doubled down. He was like, Oh, you're so dumb. Or I mean, that's, (laughs) that's my memory anyway. You know, he, he, he just kind of uh, doubled down on his position that uh, he knew what he was talking about. And I didn't. And I, uh, leapt from the table, ran to my book, (laughs) brought it down, slapped it down on the dinner table for my entire family to see And boom, right there in black and white was the Pluto orbit crossing the Neptune orbit. And there was no argument after that. And so that solidified my desire to tell other people when they're wrong. You know, there's (laughs) there's a certain uh, glee or, I don't know, attention seeking or acceptance I get out of being right. And so from that point forward, or maybe even prior to that, uh, I've just, I've had a kind of an alarm bell whenever I hear things that I find to be dubious. And which led me to like science and empirical observation and the philosophy of science, scientism as, as we might say in some circles. And so uh, like with the anti-vax thing, I'm not a physician and I don't have any, you know, horse in the race as they say when it comes to vaccinations. But aside from the fact that I'm one of the human beings in this society and don't want to, you know, incur infections because Mm -hmm. of not doing, doing, which actually is run through my mind. I'm like, how many measles? Cause you're supposed to have, I think like three measles vaccinations throughout your life. And I, I'm not sure if I've had all three. And so now I'm like worried, am I going to get the measles? It's just, um, so like with the anti-vax thing, it's interesting. The article that you read, the the different levels of it, uh, which I'm trying to apply to the anti-vax people because, um, on one, so that, you know, the, the layer just below rational thought, which would, which we would say you should vaccinate your kids, uh, but just below was like, what was this the second layer? Was like they they, uh, they
1: conspiratorial.
0: They, well, wasn't there one right above that, like where they they kind of questioned science or something?
1: Well, that that's the fringe science level. So they're still trying to work within science, but they're saying like there's literally like they use the debunked research that said that vaccines could cause autism, that kind of thing.
0: Right. So. So that, so that makes sense to me. It's like, I can identify people in the fringe science area for sure. Um, There was a whole thing around thalidomide, I believe, and, and mercury and, um, and uh, it was researched and debunked that it would lead to autism or whatever else you think is wrong with vaccines. And so that level, I understand the conspiratorial level. I can understand because it's like um, if, if you believe that the government is lying to you or, you know, like um, one of the conspiracies around anti-vax people is that physicians or big pharma are just out to trick us all to earn more money or to retain power or something because mm-hmm. they don't want to relinquish money or power to, you um, alternative medicine and uh, this when you actually look into the industry of medicine doesn't make a lot of sense and um if it was a conspiracy data would show that like someone anyway the point is is the conspiracy doesn't hold a lot of uh, strength in most people's minds Uh, so so i've seen people like that for sure right but then you take it to the next level of like religion (laughs) Or what was the next level? Like, uh,
1: yeah, um, well, paranormal was the next one, and then spiritual.
0: Right, so paranormal, I'm trying to like apply that to the... Can you figure out how that would be applied to the anti-vax people?
1: Uh, no, I think that was probably more of the fringe science conspiratorial level. Um, paranormal would be more, I guess, like some mystical or magical reason for something rather than science or conspiratorial whereas right. spiritual is god made it happen kind of thing
0: right right and i, I maybe it's like evolution would be a, a, an example of on that spectrum where you could get to religion and and uh, you know in the in the in the solid sound science area of evolution we have mainstream consensus of evolution and then you have the the next level of people who are fringe they're just like well you know i don't know i question scientists and what their claims are you know you'll hear conversations like that but they're still like trying to live in the realm of science then you get to the conspiracy which i'm having a hard time identifying a cons you know anti-evolution people thinking it's a conspiracy maybe like a the a Jewish conspiracy against Christianity or something. <laughs> I've never heard that before, but uh, you, know, you, you could imagine someone coming up with that. And then of course you get to the end of the line in terms of religion and they're just like, well, God created the planet 6,000 years ago and the devil is creating evidence of evolution to uh, cloud people's minds and to trick them into not believing in God. Uh, and there, right. There are people who say that. Um, so yeah, I, that that spectrum is interesting. It, it's interesting to think about.
1: Yeah, I, I definitely have the same kind of problem that you have, which you know, pointing out people <laughs> that are wrong, and I've really tried hard not to have those conversations. I think what probably let me led me down the social work road is I have those same strong feelings when I see something wrong in the social justice arena, and I can remember a very clear marker of this when I was in junior high, where I saw someone getting bullied, they were um, developmentally disabled. And this guy was just calling her names. And it was only me and her and him in this area. And he was much bigger than I was. And, you know, my mouth, I just walked right up to his face. And, you know, if you're going to pick on someone, you can just go ahead and pick on me. That's not cool. And of course, it put me in danger. I didn't think of that at the time, but that has been a streak through my life is the balance between fighting and feeling like, well, no one else is going to say something, so I have to say something. But I also don't want to be that person, you know?
0: Yeah, it's tough. Um, I just saw a movie, First Reformed. Have you seen this movie?
1: No. First With Reformed, e- I'll write that down.
0: Ethan Hawke. It's, did you see um, Lobster a couple years ago? There's no, not, what's that about? It's a weird movie, like comedy, surreal movie, but um, with Colin Farrell. But anyway, he, he, the same guy He made a follow-up movie. Um, he's actually the writer of Last Temptation of Christ and Taxi Driver and...
1: Mm.
0: Anyway, Paul Schrader. I think that's his name. Uh, Shaver? Anyway, the movie... First reformed is I, I don't want to spoil it, but so I'm not going to, but watch the movie, it has something to do with what we're talking about, but yeah, i mean it's it's um it's tough to watch things happen and to know what to do i i, I so it's funny because I before taking a massive tangent, I was originally trying to answer your question, which was uh, what you asked me, which is uh that. You know how, how do you essentially navigate the space around when you see something that is wrong or hypocritical or I don't know? Um, how do you what, how do you respond and perhaps how do you respond in a way that convinces other people to change their minds? And or how do
1: you be okay with not responding? Right. I mean, both both scenarios.
0: Yeah, and it's it's hard because I. I don't know the answer to that question and I I've been extremely clunky with that in my life. Um and I find that the options are so limited because um you know you see something happening and whether it's like let's just get back to microaggressions and what do you say mm-hmm. because the often the interaction is um, is limited. Like you only have maybe like two exchanges before the interaction is going to be over anyway. So how do you explain everything that needs to be explained in that tiny little time,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know, and, and how do you navigate people's feelings about it? And, and what I find the, in a nutshell, cause I've actually heard people give advice about this Uh, And I've thought about it myself. I mean, to be honest, what my solution is, I just don't do anything. Like, I'm just too afraid of the conflict, you know. I'm just like, okay, Uh, because um, I just don't know what to do. And then I go on the podcast and, like, complain about it to everyone, hoping that (laughs) maybe, like, uh, someone out there will, some other person who might be in that realm might actually think about it, you know, and and move on. And... The podcast really allows you know us as podcasters to just kind of spout at a bunch of people without having to deal with their response right away, you know, mm-hmm. um, which you know has its pros and cons. But anyway, what what I've heard other people do who um, give advice and have frequent conversations like this is something along the lines of, um, in your mind, you kind of have to slow down. You have to like gauge where the other person is and how to respond to them in a way that they can understand and and not be hurt by and not be too challenged by. Like you don't want to challenge them too much. Right. Like if someone's talking about, for example, anti-vaccination and and they're like, well, I heard, you know, that vaccination causes, you know, um, causes autism and so blah, blah, blah. Um, Or they say something like, well, you know, big pharma, of course they're going to say that vaccinations are good because they make money off of it. So obviously in that, if you heard someone say that, they've absorbed quite a bit of propaganda. This isn't just a fleeting thought that, they're, that they had.
1: And mm-hmm. it, you
0: know, in two exchanges with this person, in the next 30 seconds, you're not going to be able to erase all that propaganda because you're just one person. And, and if you come out uh, screaming or come out strong, they're just going to be like, oh, this is one of the big pharma zealots, you know, or they, they have some vested interest or you know, something.
1: Right, they're probably going to double down on their reaction.
0: Right, and they and there's research actually showing that that when you actually push people afterwards through uh, observation, empirical observation, people actually feel st- more strong about their position than before the exchange. Um, there's just this cognitive bias where we just it's just easy for us. It's easier for us to dig in than to enter a gray zone, mm-hmm. and so. The response to that person is like Oh interesting well you know i've i've read i 've read a lot of different kind of things about that you know i've I've read yeah that big pharma has some problems for sure and i've also read that vaccinations like for the you know ninety nine point nine 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 percent of the time is totally safe, uh, maybe even a hundred percent safe I, so i've you know i've kind of read both things and I don't know. It's just it's just an interesting thing to think about. So in that, if if you only have one chance to say something, you know, even though I don't believe that, you know, I, I'm I'm expressing kind of a gray attitude when I have a very black and white attitude about anti-vaccination. Right. But I'm expressing a gray attitude, and I'm and I'm not challenging the person directly. I'm not ridiculing them, and I'm not forcing them to. Uh, think too hard about their position I'm just introducing this idea of just like well I have thoughts about that too and I've you know I don't know I'm 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 kind of uh you know I I listen to both sides And, and then the person it might open up their mind of just like oh I like this person this person seems like a nice person I don't have to dig in and Maybe I'll look into that, you know, because that actually ha- can work for some people. They want, they might, in the in the moment, go like, "Well, I I don't know. I think vaccinations are bad." But you know, you just planted a little bit of a because the way you presented it, it's they accepted it into their heart. Later that day, they Google and they start, you know, looking into maybe what you were talking about. So. I personally have a really hard time doing that, though. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I run upstairs, grab the astronomy book, and slap it down on the table. That's, that's, yeah. that's, that's my useful style.
1: Yeah, I also have difficulty with that. I was thinking of the microaggression example. And I guess, again, it's, it depends on a lot of things. Who you're talking to, how long you think this interaction is going to be. Is it someone that you're interacting with a lot? Or is it just someone that you're going to have a 30-second exchange with? And either way, you should also take into account who's being microaggressed against, having some empathy for the person. Do they have a harsh intent or do they just make it, like we said earlier, a faux pas and they just maybe need a little guidance as to think about what you're saying instead of saying, you can't say such and such anymore.
0: Right, exactly. Uh, So what is the name of your podcast?
1: Someday We'll All Be Dead.
0: Someday We'll All Be Dead, that's right. (laughs) And you talk about what sort of stuff on the podcast?
1: You know, I really have modeled it towards yours. You you are, I have to admit, the reason that I have a podcast because of your uh, episode about using social media to enhance your practice. And uh, I listened to it, and you were talking about putting voices out there. And I haven't found a lot of social work perspective podcasts that I've liked. And so I like to talk about when I say all the things with a, with a social work perspective. So any kind of daily relational or anything going on uh, that I can apply values and ethics to. And sometimes we just get off topic and talk about funny things, but um, yeah. And, and I want to focus on the reason that someday we'll all be dead is let's think about these things that are happening. And is it really, you know, what can you do to better your life now? Because someday we'll all be dead. So that's kind of where I'm coming from.
0: <laughs> well, you have a wonderful, approach uh to interviewing in that you have interesting stimulus questions and then you found a narcissistic individual to interview who (laughs) loves to hear himself talk so uh that's that's a good combo
1: well i didn't want to be the boring one that says oh where do you work why did you get into therapy
0: oh you everybody knows that i hate that too (laughs) I am exactly the same because there's other psychology podcast. I guess there's a lot of other podcasts in general, but yeah, of this, there's other psychology podcasts where that's what they'll do. They'll spend the first 20 minutes talking about someone's career.
1: Yeah. No, I don't want to do that. I'm, I'm, I'm talking to you and using your time because I want valuable content, not because I want to spend 30 minutes talking about why you chose what you chose.
0: Yeah. So you interview people mostly? Is that is that what you do? Or do
1: um, you- no, not always. Um, you're my first big interview. I'm really also excited because in two weeks I'm going to be interviewing a doctor that does pediatric hospice down at Children's in Seattle. Oh, so part of the the point of the podcast, I'm, I have different um, kind of routes that I go, and one of them is difficult conversations, and so that is going to be one of them. Like no one wants to talk about kids dying, right? Oh. Um And he gave a really great presentation to our staff. So I just want to kind of go over that. And then I interviewed my mom about being a caregiver for several different people and how that was difficult. So it's mostly been people that I know so far. Um, But I am looking forward to interviewing more people outside of my direct sphere for their expertise.
0: What did he say during the presentation?
1: Oh, he's so amazing. He, um, he really was talking about how we have different perspectives on what a good life or quality of life is. That was one of the big things is just because we think something is a quality of life. And this goes across hospice, really. Um, it doesn't mean that that's how they interpret it. And kids really guide us in what they think is a good quality of life. They probably A lot of times he said they rate their quality of life higher than the actual doctors that are giving the care which was fascinating.
0: Interesting. So they focus on that rather than on necessarily extending life because that's might be pointless in some situations. Is that what he was saying?
1: Well, that's part of it. He, um, he talked a lot about how there's, um, kind of moral distress in staff and how that it's not just us. Like we're one of the few hospices that takes pediatric patients and they can have concurrent care, which is unusual, Like if an adult has hospice, they're not getting uh, curative care also. And so um, when you have a pediatric patient, you're also working with the children's staff and they're on care. I think there's something like 30 or 40 kids in Washington State right now on hospice. um, And we're one of the few that takes them. So he talks a lot about how it's not just you in hospice having limited experience with this, having some moral distress and having to, to navigate that. Um, and hold the space for the parents. But we as children that do it every day, we also have difficulty and kind of here's our difficulty and how we get through it.
0: Wow. That's a whole world that I do not, I, I have always fantasized as a weird word, but (laughs) thought about working in hospice as a mental health person. I love it. Yeah. Because the sort of face to face with our death and people dying Mm -hmm. and and what the individuals go through, what the families go through, I find to be meaningful in a huge way. Like, do you run into that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's another couple of my episodes were just me going over hospice and death with dignity and specific things to do with hospice since that's what I do. But yeah, it's every interaction every day with different families gives me a new perspective on my own life. Um, I have stopped being a, a quote unquote hoarder, that's for sure. I very rarely buy anything anymore and I want to purge everything out of my life. Um, thinking about families having to deal with just stuff and how it's not really important in the end. So, yeah, I think that's really helped. And you've mentioned in your podcast about death anxiety. That's why I was uh, suggesting that other podcast, The Adventures of Memento Mori. Um, it's a, I think they claim it as a cynic's guide to living with the reminder of death or something like that and so they they look at all different kind of they're really focused on death all the time whereas i'm not really i'm only focused on it as you know we have a limited time here so let's value what the time we have is and what can we do with it and get better information but working in hospice has definitely given me i don't have any death anxiety really um except for i know how i don't want to die If that makes sense, but I I don't worry about it on a day-to-day basis, even though I think about it all the time.
0: Do you believe in an afterlife?
1: You know, sometimes and sometimes not. I'm really still on the fence about it. Yeah. Um, Yeah.
0: What's one thing that someone has given you wisdom-wise who passed away?
1: Um, (laughs) I think I don't know. It's necessarily a phrase or something specific that someone's told me, but. Um, there's been several of our families that have been together for many, many decades and how they navigate when their entire life has been wrapped up with someone, how they're navigating the end or seeing the end of that. And sometimes it's, you know, some families have a lot more difficulty with that and other ones just completely embrace the good memories they've had and enjoy the time that they have together. Um, I'd say some of that comes down to their own faith and believing, you know, belief. A lot of people I find have the most peace when they have a really strong belief in an afterlife or in a, a heaven, but not always. Um, the younger people, especially in the '60s range, for some reason, um, really, really struggle. That's heartbreaking because it seems like they're just fighting it so hard, and it's hard to get them um, comfortable and at ease, especially if they're not able to communicate at that point. So.
0: How how are they fighting it, as you're saying?
1: Uh, Literally physically fighting it. Like The uh, the terminal agitation is almost always off the chart with someone in their 50s, 60s, because there's just something innate about you're not able to accept your own mortality. And even when they are able to communicate, it's very challenging. Um, they're, They're not ready to accept it. They don't want to talk about it. And so when it comes to the point of not being able to, um, because generally people on hospice aren 't going to have a sudden death like a heart attack, um, so when they get to the point of not being able to communicate there 's just a lot of restlessness and a lot of agitation and <clears throat> it ends up taking oftentimes a lot more medication than it normally would to have people be able to be comfortable it's it's hard
0: agitation meaning they're visibly upset and angry and sad or that yeah
1: but in in an um in a nonverbal way.
0: Like they're thrashing in their bed, or Mm. or
1: sometimes, yeah, or Or sometimes it's um,
0: bad mood toward the nurses or something.
1: (laughs) Well, lots of times they're not even able to communicate that much; just uh, you know, furrowed brow and grabbing onto bed sheets and clenching and having fists and moaning and things like that.
0: God, it's horrible.
1: Yeah, it's not everyone. I mean, (laughs) I don't want to see. I don't want to make it sound like it's like that all the time. And like every single person in their sixties does that, but that is a more common age range. Um, There's certainly people in their eighties and nineties that aren't ready to die either. So, and then I get some other people that are just like, it's okay if I go now, but I, you know, I'd like to have more time, but I'm okay. So it's just their own journey and how they got there. A lot of times too, it depends on how long they've been fighting their diagnosis. Um, Of course, a younger person that's only been fighting for a few months has a lot bigger struggle than someone that's maybe had cancer off and on for 20 years or 10 years, and then by the time they get to hospice, they're a little more resigned. Whereas someone that just came off a real hardcore chemo treatment <clears throat> may be really struggling with accepting stopping curative treatment.
0: How many people do you think you have worked with who have passed away? Just like a rough estimate, I'm curious.
1: Oh, geez, hundred, a hundred. Maybe.
0: And you've known them.
1: Yeah. Yeah. This is like going into their house, sometimes a facility, but usually their house, meeting with them, meeting with their loved ones.
0: How is that yeah. for you?
1: I, I have been around hospice since I was about eight and I was always drawn to this work. I really feel uh, an honor and a sense of duty and, and <clears throat> what's the word? Fulfillment by being able to hold that space because I'm very comfortable with it. Uh, I know other people in my social work program are working at places like DSHS and they say, oh, I could never do hospice. And I think, oh, I could never do DSHS. Like that's that's way more morally distressing to me than sitting with someone that's dying. So I guess we all just have to work on what, what talent we have. And I feel like this is my particular talent to be able to be comfortable having those difficult conversations and holding space for people that might not otherwise be able to.
0: So you don't want to die. How?
1: Uh, I don't want to like Alzheimer's. I don't want something that's where you're mentally for a very long time, possibly years, unable to communicate. I mean, that's just awful. Um, I don't know that I would at the time use death with dignity, but I'd like to be able to have the option. And unfortunately with diseases like Uh, ALS and Parkinson's and Alzheimer's that's often not possible by the time you get to six months or less I mean I don't think anybody wants to have a prolonged death but there certainly are some diseases that can go on for years and it's just agonizing for the family and the patient
0: so you've seen that before and didn't want to have that
1: yeah yeah I don't want to be the skeleton in the wheelchair that can't communicate and has to be fed and have the diapers changed For years.
0: (laughs) Are those people aware of what's happening?
1: Generally not. I don't think. Although sometimes there's glimpses. Um, Our program offers a music and memories uh, thing with our volunteers. So they go out and play music. I don't know if you've heard about that before. Yeah. Uh, And that, that in that moment, it seems like they're very able to engage, although verbal is limited. Um, So there are moments when they're a little more able to, but sometimes they're just, it's not more than eye contact or they have a lot of fear and anxiety, especially if they've had trauma in their life. Um, We really try to be trauma focused and trauma informed when we're dealing with our patients. Um, You know, sometimes you think that touch is soothing and sometimes people are just so fearful. they it's not comforting to be touched. We ran into that recently with a, with a patient um, that just, you know, these caregivers came in and they were all petting her and like rubbing their hands on her arms. And it was really making her agitated um, because there was trauma in the past.
0: Does Alzheimer's or ALS run into your family history?
1: Thankfully, no, <laughs> I don't think I'm going to have that trouble, but I, since I see it, it, you know, that's really the only kind of anxiety, and it's, I wouldn't even say anxiety because I don't really worry about it since I don't have a family history of it. But
0: yeah, have you done the Have you done the DNA test?
1: I haven't done. I thought about doing the um, the twenty three and Me because it's supposed to have those medical markers. Yeah, but I haven't. I haven't done that one.
0: Yeah, I did. And uh, did you? Yeah, and uh, from my memory, I didn't have any. Uh, high risk of any of those things happening.
1: Well, that's good. A little less anxiety. If you don't have the marker,
0: I guess I, I'm not worried about that so much. I mean, it would be horrible, I'm guessing, but for some reason it doesn't trigger me. Uh, yeah. It's, you know, it's just interesting to think about like, yeah, what would it be? What will it be? And when, <laughs> and uh, what is
1: it? Do you think that gives you the anxiety? Is it the, the, guess that it might blink out into nothingness
0: uh well it's a larger complicated question in relation to what we're talking about earlier i'd have to explain what i even mean by anxiety because it's not like i'm i'm worried in the or nervous you know i'm not stressed out about death it's more upsetting to me that our time is limited you know like Mm. like um have you ever done those um those wind tunnels where you get a skydive inside—I've
1: uh, seen them, but no, I haven't tried one yet.
0: Well, I did it in Renton,
1: right? Yeah,
0: in Rent or Tuckwilla. It's, it's expensive, yeah. you know. It's like I don't know, fifty bucks, hundred bucks for for uh, a session where you get to do like three two minute free falls, you know. So something like that. Yeah. It's, it's expensive, and you only get to do it for a very short amount of time. Well, while I was in that thing. It it was exhilarating. And just as I was kind of getting used to it and able to, because it's hard, it's a skill to be be able to stay aloft, you know, and to not, you know, sort of fly out of control. Mm -hmm. And while I was in there, um, pretty quickly I I realized, you know, my time is almost up in this thing and um, I'm bummed out about that. I wish I could stay. That's how I feel about death anxiety.
1: Hmm.
0: So I'm not. I'm not flying sense. around. I'm not flying around in the wind tunnel, like terrified that my time's going to be up. It's more just like <laughs> I'm now, having. See, it. That
1: would be the opposite because I have a phobia of flying yeah. and um, negative. But G, that's not so flying.
0: I, that's falling. That's falling.
1: Well, right. <laughs> but the problem with flying is the turbulence and falling to my death. Um, and the the Great Wheel in Seattle will will evoke that when I'm, I tried it to try out some new medicine to see if I could fly with something strong enough to not make me have a panic attack.
0: Have you tried Have you tried Valium?
1: I have tried Valium, but I don't know if maybe it wasn't strong enough.
0: Must not have been.
1: I tried... Um, Xanax? No, that's Al-Prat- probably what I need to try.
0: It's, a, it's,
1: like a, um, it's supposed to also be used for anxiety, and it didn't do a damn thing.
0: Well, if you take enough Xanax or enough uh, Valium... It will work.
1: I, 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 I hope so. I haven't found it strong enough yet, but I asked for it before and she, she asked me to try this, uh, whatever this Benadryl type drug was that I can't think of. And cause she's, you know, you go into your doctor's office asking for a Benzo. They're probably not <laughs> going to be a fan of trying that first. Um, well,
0: the, the thing that I tell people to say is all I want is like two pills Yeah, or all I want is five pills. That's all I want. Like, and I'm and I'm not going to ask you for more than that because I'm. It's pretty much just this one thing that I want to do, and I don't want to have to deal with it. You know, so so if you say that, I think you have a greater chance. Yeah, they're worried that if you if you just sort of leave it open ended, like give me benzos, then (laughs) then they're like, okay, this might be a problem. But if you're, I
1: definitely was talking about because I've tried hypnosis, I've tried. Uh, just regular talk therapy. I had a mind over mood book with me. I flew on a plane that was, you know, I used to be an aircraft mechanic. And so I flew on a Southwest jet because I know them inside and out. I was trying to do all these things that would make it better. And uh, I ended up canceling my flight back and and drove home because I feel like I'm losing years of my life every time I get on a plane. (laughs) It's terrible.
0: Do you drink alcohol?
1: Uh yeah, I've tried that too. I've been um almost stumbling drunk on the uh little airway there to get onto the plane and by the time we take off, I'm stone sober. Oh boy. So my, my adrenaline just takes over. So I don't know what kind of how strong of a Xanax I'd need, but
0: <laughs> well, It sounds like you got a pretty strong case of it. That's for sure. Um Yeah. But luckily uh, most
1: of my family's right here, so I don't really have to go anywhere. (laughs) It is a little bit limiting.
0: Well, I just, yeah, I think I've talked about this in the podcast before. I had a phobia about medical procedures for a time and I had to have a pretty major surgery, not a major, but I had a pretty major procedure done on my dentist, you know, where they had to drill into my, Jaw to to put an implant in, you know, with an actual drill, like with Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. with with drill bits. I could see the drill (coughs) bit going in and out of my jaw. Oh no, no. Mm -mm. And they had to cut back my gums and da da da. And so
1: they don't knock you out for that.
0: They could have, but um, it wasn't preferred, obviously. And it and I thought this is going to be disaster. Like, this is um, I can barely get through minor things. This is going to be awful. And I talked with my dentist about it. And he said, well, you know what, Kirk, I also have the same phobia. Uh, <laughs> as, as a dentist, I am terrified of going to the dentist. <laughs> and he said, but I have the perfect thing for you. It's called Valium. Have you heard of it? before? <laughs> and he gave me a pretty strong, strong dose recommendation. He actually, so he said uh i think it's half a milligram if i'm not mistaken or 5 milligrams um it's either half a milligram i think that i think that's Xanax half milligram anyway, anyway. he gave me from my memory he gave me 5 milligrams of valium the night before which i actually didn't take cuz i was just like I'm, i think i'm doing okay the night before but he needs it the night before you know mm, mm-hmm. and and then morning of you take you take uh either Ten milligrams or or one milligram—I can't remember the exact dosing—and I not only had little anxiety going through the procedure, I had zero anxiety. I was like, I was serene. I was on cloud nine, and
1: yeah, that's what I need to be able to fly.
0: Yeah, and because you think like, oh, it's supposed to like take the edge off. This was completely edgeless. I was like a, a spherical ball. There was no edges to my experience. I was just laying. <laughs> he, he could have drilled 10 more things into my skull and I would have been like, that's fine. You know, whatever you think is necessary. And, and I wasn't even that intoxicated. I was a little loopy and a little uninhibited, but not, there weren't profound personality changes. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It, it was just a lack of anxiety. <laughs>
1: So it wasn't like super sedating or anything. It was just right. No anxiety.
0: Now, like I I went home and (laughs) took a nap for two hours (laughs) Uh, (laughs) uh, because it is it is sedating. But in the moment, I didn't feel tired. You know, I just Mm. I just felt no anxiety. And the beauty thing about it is that after that, I had probably twenty percent. The phobia to medical procedures because my body had been exposed to it and had realized it's not a bad thing, you know? So, yeah.
1: I think you you mentioned that on the podcast too about flying. You had started to develop something. Yeah. And you took a Xanax and it kind of just took it away.
0: No, that flying, what happened to me was uh, I didn't have a phobia about it at all. And then uh, for some reason, I developed a phobia like in my early mid 20s or something. And I was, I planned a trip with my friends to go to Vegas and I got on the plane and I was terrified, you know, you know how it feels. (laughs)
1: Yes.
0: (laughs) And I, just before they closed the doors of the plane, I was, I actually, I think I even stood up and was like, I'm getting off this plane. Like I, I'm, can't do this. I'm, I'm leaving. But like my friend looked at me and was like, are you okay? And there was something about that where I was, it just sort of pulled me out of it. And I sat down and I, I, it it was, I was white knuckling it the entire time on the plane. Yeah. Got to Vegas and uh, was like, okay, what am I going to do about the plane ride back?
1: Mm -hmm.
0: But I got on the plane ride back and I felt so much better uh, because of having to sit through that plane ride, you know? And, being exposed to it. Anyway, my point is, is that your anxiety sounds very severe and is not a small thing. And there's no easy answer and you have attacked it from a lot of different ways. But I would guess that if you took, you know, um, a, you know, sizable dose of one of the benefits <laughs> Yeah. Um, don't drink by the way, because that, can compound the effects and cause you to pass out or throw up or something and, or even die from uh, heart problems. But I would suspect, you know, that it could work. It might not, but I could suspect it could work.
1: I thought I'd just try, you know, when I do eventually get some Xanax, my plan is to fly somewhere like Vegas where it's close enough that I could drive back if I had to.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Or Spokane or Portland or something. Yeah. Cause then yeah. you wouldn't have to, cause they're really short flights. Cause that, yeah, that would, that would great. be the trick is like somehow, you know, you know, about this is of gradual exposure therapy,
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, plane rides are harder because there's, it's hard to find a, a approximation of riding on a plane. Right. Uh, you know, what would you find like a small plane, but that'd be worse. Right. So
1: no, funny enough, I'm less anxious on a small plane. I think ah. when I can see the ground, like the, the most dangerous part of a flight is takeoff and landing. And that is my least anxiety-filled part because I know that when I take off, I start the, the countdown. And then when we're landing, I'm like, okay, we'll be on the ground in five minutes. We'll be on the ground in four minutes, you know. And I can see and it somehow grounds me, but it's the turbulence I'm not, I'm not scared of heights, but the turbulence on the plane, even though I completely understand the aerodynamics and wind and all that crap, it's completely illogical. So it doesn't matter. It's it's not a rational fear. So thinking my way out of it doesn't work.
0: Right, right, right. And you said you worked on planes?
1: Yeah, yeah. And I've flown back and forth to Germany three times. I mean my my fear of flying progressively got worse over time. I didn't start out with a severe fear of flying. It just got worse and worse and every time I got on the plane it gets worse and worse.
0: Yeah, that's rough. I have yeah. been there. I've been there before. <laughs> <laughs> uh, not seeing the ground, that's interesting. Yeah, because to me the the most scary part of an airplane ride is is landing. It, it yeah, seems- well, and
1: it's it's statistically the most dangerous, so Right.
0: Because seeing the ground is like, man, if just one mistake with that, with one of the ailerons or one of the flaps, and we're, you know, we're just a smear on the ground below us. <laughs> um, and actually, yeah, yeah I, that
1: whole being able to take a breath and scream, and take another breath and scream—that's the part that. And right before I flew home from Germany, uh, was ninety nine, and that's when that Egypt Air flight was hijacked and they did like kind of a roller coaster and then crashed like they went up and down three times so that didn't help
0: <laughs> why did they do that just to scare people or
1: something? it was now was a terrorist i mean they they died they crashed they crashed the plane
0: yeah but why they do roller coaster
1: i think they i mean it wasn't on purpose i don't think i think maybe someone was trying to control it and so they took a dive and then came back up oh and i think it happened two or three times and every time I hear a plane crash like that, or like the guy that flew the plane into the French Alps, you know they would have felt that going down and speeding up. Ugh. It's the anticipatory fear that makes it terrifying for me
0: yeah, for some reason, I have always thought that dying in a plane crash would actually be not a bad way to go, uh, <laughs> like logically. I mean, the actual
1: death part would be pretty quick, so right,
0: pretty quick. You'd be there with a bunch of people. There's no pain, you know, probably, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: There's, um, you feel like you're together. There would be some sort of camaraderie, like we're all in this together. Um, it would be kind of a um, fancy, it seems kind of fancy way to die. <laughs> I, I, I don't want to demean other people who have died in such ways, but Buddy Holly died in a plane crash. Stevie Ray Vaughan, John Denver. John Denver didn't, uh John F Kennedy Jr. die in yep. a plane crash.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It just seems kind of fancy.
1: As um, though I think he probably didn't even know. John F Kennedy Jr.'s um as I've read about that one I think they just kind of they were out at night, he wasn't didn't have good instruments or wasn't instrument quality or something. I think maybe they ran out of gas or it seems like it was a really slow descent. It wasn't like a crash like a, a like sudden a, like they a, hit oh, oh. something and knew it was coming.
0: Yeah. Huh. So, well, that's even better, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so hospice and, and death doesn't scare me coming back to the point.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so plug your podcast again.
1: Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Someday we'll all be dead.
0: Someday we'll all be dead.
1: It's got a little, um, it's a black and white logo and it's got death swinging on a scythe.
0: All right. Well, thanks Hallie for uh, this interesting conversation.
1: Yes. Thank you. And can I just, Say it for the first time ever with you. Yeah. Take care of yourself because.
0: You deserve it. You really, really do.
1: I love it. (laughs) Thank you so much.
0: Sure.